This is Hybrid Wars, a podcast looking at how violent conflict around the world is becoming more deadly and more difficult to resolve than ever before. I'm Adam Day from UN University's Center for Policy Research in New York. I spent most of the last 10 years working in UN peace operations in Darfur, South Sudan, the Middle East, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Now I research war, trying to understand how violent conflicts break out, what sustains them, and what brings them to an end. Over the years, I've become less and less confident about the ways we all talk and think about war. Today's violent conflicts don't always follow the same logic or patterns of traditional wars, and they often don't match up with what we read on the news. But one thing seems pretty clear. The kinds of conflicts that are happening today in places like Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Iraq, Nigeria, Afghanistan, and Mali, they all seem harder to resolve than almost anything we've ever seen before. This podcast is about how war is changing. How do they explain the killing of innocent civilians? How do they explain the burning of so many villages? How do they explain women and children in IDP camps? Over the past three years, our team of researchers have spent months in some of the most war-torn places on Earth. They've gone into parts of Iraq where ISIS occupied vast territories. They've witnessed firsthand how the battle against al-Shabaab is being waged in Somalia. They traveled into northern Nigeria, where Boko Haram still threatens hundreds of thousands of people today. This work is often dangerous, and it's never free. So before going any further, I want to thank UK Aid, the part of the British government that generously funded our field research over the past three years. The work of our team, which you can find in the description of our podcast, reveals a shifting cast of characters in some of today's toughest conflicts. It shows the many hats that can be worn by warlords, paramilitaries, by militias, rebel groups, jihadis, criminals, private companies, and governments. Their work shows that you can't understand these kind of conflicts from the outside. You need to get your hands dirty and understand them from the ground up, and that's why we're here. We'll get down into the mud soon, but in this first episode, we're going to look at the big picture, consider the complex role and impact of paramilitary groups in some of the most conflict-affected areas in the world. Our recent report is entitled Hybrid Conflict, Hybrid Peace, because paramilitary and militia forces often play a role somewhere between official state and non-state actor. They're outcomes of a fragmented political system. They emerge because governments are not able to govern and protect their populations. This episode will delve into this idea of hybridity because it's going to be a theme that runs through almost all of the conflicts we look at on this show. To get started, I sat down with Erica Gaston, a leading expert on paramilitary fighters. Uh, my name is Erica Gaston. I'm a fellow with the Global Public Policy Institute and also a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge. And for the last couple of years, I've been running a project that looks at local, hybrid, and other types of sub-state forces. Erica has written a lot about Afghanistan and Iraq, both places where the lines between state and non-state tend to get blurred. And in both countries, governments have had a really hard time holding territory against insurgent fighters, whether it's the Taliban or the Islamic State. Facing some sort of existential threat, these governments have turned to a range of other fighting forces, local defense groups, militias, paramilitary groups, and proxy fighters, all to help them defeat a powerful enemy. Increasingly, governments are outsourcing a lot of their fighting to paramilitary groups. There are certainly arguments that, you know, this is, this is on, the, on the rise. This isn't a new concept. 
Countries have been using proxy forces for hundreds of years. The Ottoman Empire employed the Barbary pirates to harass European powers before the 16th century. France and England used proxies in the Hundred Years' War. And the Cold War between Russia and the U.S. spread proxy warfare around the globe, including the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. But something has changed in the post-Cold War period, sometime between 1990 and today. Because you're starting to get more internal civil conflicts and you have higher costs in general to intervening in other states, also due to globalization and other sort of more interconnected, um, greater interconnections between states, that there are greater barriers to states directly intervening and so greater tendencies for them to want to outsource um, to other actors. Um, and, and certainly those are factors. I mean, also, you just have the pure costs. So a lot of these local forces or militias you know, they're a cheap, immediate option. They're there on the ground. They're ready to be mobilized. And they might not demand that much in terms of pay and arms. They're certainly cheaper than deploying international forces, both in terms of pure financial costs and in terms of, you know, domestic costs at home of sending troops abroad. And they can definitely appear faster or, or even possibly more legitimate than deploying, say, the, the host state or the home state government's forces, particularly where they're in areas where the state doesn't have control or where there's other um, political, maybe sectarian, ethnic, or other sort of grievance-based issues to doing so. So imagine you're in Baghdad in June 2014, and the Islamic State is sweeping across northern Iraq, taking major cities like Mosul and getting uncomfortably close to the capital. When the Shia cleric Ali al-Sistani issues a call to arms for the people of Iraq to rise up and defend their country, dozens of local defense forces respond. These groups aren't part of the Iraqi army, but they are on the front lines fighting the Islamic State. And it's not just Shia groups. You have Christian, Yazidi, Sunni tribal fighters, all kinds of groups that become the popular mobilization forces fighting against the Islamic State and winning. Let's call them the enemy, which is what they are. And we should declare war on ISIS. We should declare war on ISIS. War! It's war! And we've got to put an end to it. And if we don't, we're not going to have a country left anymore. We're not going to have a country. And we have won against ISIS. We've beaten them, and we've beaten them badly. We've taken back the land. Without these forces, some experts think the Islamic State would have been able to take Baghdad, essentially toppling the Iraqi government. Sure, the popular mobilization forces were ruthless, and many of them had worrying ties to Tehran. And it's usually not a great idea to have multiple armies in one country. But under the enormous pressure created by Islamic State, the Iraqi government didn't just accept the PMF. It welcomed these groups. And today, the popular mobilization forces are legally part of the Iraqi security establishment but it's still a paramilitary force. And this kind of thing is not just happening in Iraq. Certainly are seeing countries for whom this is a key part of their security strategy, whether you're talking about Iran's uh, use of proxies across the Middle East as a key part of its security portfolio, or the way that Russia is using private security companies like the Wagner Group, or completely on the flip side, I mean, the U.S. has very much leaned into using different types of surrogates or proxies or partners in a number of countries, whether that's having auxiliary forces that are operating alongside of special forces 
or trying to, you know, have sort of mass mobilizations of tribal forces in some of the counterinsurgency efforts. So we are seeing this in a lot of different countries and different patterns. But, you know, some of the same reasons that state looks at outsource their um, their conflicts remain the same. But critics of the plan say it could lead to human rights violations. Daniel Smith, a retired Army colonel, is a military affairs expert with the National Friends Committee on Legislation. Uh, making almost a mercenary uh, unit or a series of units uh, available to go into an area, and if they get killed or captured, uh, the U.S. government has plausible deniability. Say who? We never were involved. The upsides of using paramilitaries are clear. They're cheap, they're quick, they're effective, and often willing to do the kind of dirty work that might not look good on a government resume. And if you're a cash-strapped government like Somalia, Nigeria, or Iraq, cheap outsourcing of security can be the difference between survival and being overthrown. But there are also some really important risks when irregular forces get deeply involved. In general, these are often irregular actors with uh, really poor discipline, poor command and controls. They may just be sort of, you know, risky, irregular actors themselves. Um, But in terms of like sort of larger risks for states, I mean, these groups come with their own interests and agenda, which could be different than the country that wants to sponsor them, but also really not in the interest of local communities who are affected by them. Um, They often have links with insurgents, with terrorist groups or with other criminal groups. So there's always the risk that if they're supported, for example, and given weapons, that they could pass that material on to other groups. They may even become the security problem themselves. So you have the classic example of the U.S. supporting Mujahideen groups in Afghanistan in the 1980s, and then offshoots of that later become al-Qaeda. There is also the long history of human rights abuses by paramilitary groups operating outside the chain of command, often without any oversight or accountability. These groups have few constraints and have been involved in some of the worst crimes in today's wars. As pressure builds on world leaders to stop the mass killing, rape, and displacement of civilians at the hands of government-backed militias, some human rights groups are calling for U.S.-led military intervention under U.N. auspices. There are other negative consequences, too. I mean, these actors can be particularly risky when mobilized among divided communities. So this often results in in sort of retaliatory or tit-for-tat violences, It can deepen existing fault lines and grievances, and it may prolong the conflict. Um, And then at sort of a broader level, you know, if you're concerned about the degree of coherence or authority of the state, empowering lots of other armed groups certainly challenges the authority of the state at a national level. And so it can feed into other sources of fragility and fragmentation. And then at both the national and local level, you do, it does tend to weaken the rule of law. So especially where you get the combination of armed actors that are using their position of power as an armed group to carry out their own interests, you know, and cannot be held to account, um, that's you're smartly more likely to get a sort of rule by the gun situation than a rule of law situation. You know, these groups don't want to stand down. So, you know, once you start them, they have a vested interest in continuing the conflict in many cases. They can act as spoilers to peace processes, and they're very difficult to demobilize. The Pentagon is proposing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on what it calls friendly militias around the world to help fight its war on terrorism. However, some worry that such a proposal could be a throwback to U.S. policies that helped fund the Taliban in the 80s and paramilitaries throughout Latin America that resulted in hundreds of massacres. 
All of this gets to the crux of what we mean when we refer to hybrid forces. They are created at times of hybridity and reflect the hybridity even after a conflict has ended. It's a controversial term because also I think sometimes hybrid force, it starts people thinking about hybrid warfare or lots of other um and I think, so, you know, academics will object that hybrid is sort of misnomer because it assumes that there's a default that's a state force. And of course, if you're working in a lot of these countries, you know, the state forces don't look all that much like a state themselves or there's not much difference between them and the militias. But generally, it, when people are talking about hybrid forces or sort of parastatal or state parallel forces, they're talking about forces that have some qualities that we would associate with militias or with the regular forces. So maybe they started as sort of ad hoc groups with low levels of organization and command and control. Maybe they're very personality driven around a particular commander or warlord. Um, but over time, they've also taken on auspices of of the state. So maybe they've become deputized and they actually have an official title within the state. Maybe it's sort of only a quasi state designation. Maybe they, you know, have a badge, but they don't wear a full uniform. And a lot of these groups also they play that sort of hybridity or that um, that quasi state designation to their advantage. So they act like a militia force and you know wantonly violate state rules or engage in the illicit economy or leverage their informal power bases whenever that's convenient for them. And then when they want to, they sort of play up their official state role and that they are, you know, in order to have more legitimacy or credibility or access to funds. So hybrid just connotes that the thing that we're seeing in a lot of countries and don't have a great word for, which is that you have these actors that, you know, both compete and cooperate with the state and both play up formal and informal power structures. That idea of spoilers to a peace process is one of the dominant narratives in Afghanistan today. And this idea of hybridity can clearly be seen in the war there today. I mean, so Afghanistan is often held up as your prototypical case of, of what's wrong with militias. You know how you had so many militias um, springing out during the 1980s that they eventually overwhelm the government and sort of drag all of these different competing factions, drag it into, you know, arguably the most bloody period in Afghanistan's history, this ugly civil war that then, you know, makes the Taliban look like a welcome respite. Um, and then in the post-2001 period, these militias have not gone away. They've never been entirely demobilized. A lot of them have been brought into the state, which has really hampered a lot of the state building and governance efforts. A lot of them continue to be in control of illicit economies, to run criminal networks. So all of these different iterations of militias have a long list of, of criminality and of abuses from, you know, shelling cities and egregious laws of war violations to, on an individual and regular basis, um, torture, beatings, um, rape, um, other abuse to civilians, as well as sort of racketeering and other sort of, you know, illegal taxation, you name it. Um, so for all of these reasons, uh, militias have a very bad reputation in Afghanistan, and it was definitely controversial when in 2009, as part of the U.S. counterinsurgency strategy, they proposed that a solution might be to mobilize local forces. They didn't call them militias because that would have been a non-starter, but to mobilize um, tribal or community forces um, as part of the counterinsurgency efforts to win back rural areas where Afghan state forces either just weren't present or weren't able to compete with the Taliban. But because you had this past history of militia violence in Afghanistan, 
and because these forces were born into a moment where there was such primacy given to good governance and civilian protection, you had much more of an emphasis on, okay, we're going to have these militias, these local forces, but we're going to try and constrain them. As Paul Wolfowitz, then U.S. Deputy Secretary of Defense, told a congressional committee, these friendly militias were viewed as partners in the fight against terrorism. Our goal overall should be to reduce the space in which terrorists find sanctuary to the maximum extent possible. The U.S. and its allies must be able to work with these partners and potential partners and help to build their capacity to counter terrorism and insurgency within their own borders. And this is a a series of different initiatives from 2009 on. They ultimately mobilized something like 30,000 different forces and, you know, are sustained over a decade um, effectively. Obviously, the story goes on in Afghanistan. But the main point is that paramilitary and militia forces are not some sort of add-on to the war there. They're part of the conflict landscape. There's no easy way the Afghan government can solve its problems without them. But they also mean that there's no easy way to get out of the conflict there. This is what I meant at the top of the show when I talked about conflicts being intractable. What we're trying to explore here is whether the use of paramilitary forces might be one of the most important factors in this intractability. I ended my chat by asking Erica what she would recommend. I mean, first, I would recommend don't mobilize militias. or Don't be tempted to create a hybrid force. I'm I'm partially kidding because I know that's not constructive. But I would just say, you know, I will just make an argument for that recommendation, which is that for those governments that are tempted to view local forces as a quick and cheap alternative to deploying more regular forces, um, you know, hasty mobilization. So doing it quickly without paying attention to who you are mobilizing and the local or national ripple effects of doing it. This has proved to be the most likely to result in counterproductive and pernicious local forces. The fact and then second point, the fact that you need to take care and go slowly in the mobilization phase means that they are inherently not a quick fix solution, which is why most governments want them. And then thirdly, why I would, ex- I would encourage caution is that these solutions don't work everywhere. So there are some places where you, you do find that local populations do want to be protected by local forces and that that is a more sustainable way to protect their interests. And they, they do view it as protecting their local interests. But there's also a lot of places where this is really, really dangerous, where for all of the reasons we've discussed before, It's more likely to spur local conflict, to create a lot of human rights abuses and other risks to sort of governance and other policy concerns, possibly to spur um, counter-recruitment, so to spur the insurgency, um, and to prolong the conflict. So investing in these sort of militias or local force strategies can be a really high-risk, high-reward. Where it works well, it might work really well, but there are a lot more areas where it works really, really badly. And this is also why, you know, for most of these conflicts, we, you know, there's a tendency to want to have immediate short-term solutions, but you also want a solution to the whole problem. You want a solution that's going to address whatever the, the grievances or sort of the conflict predilections are on a national basis. You don't want a solution that's only going to work in five communities. And that is often what ends up happening with some of these local force mobilizations. So I will say that that's sort of the, the large reason of, what, you know, when you have the prescription of don't mobilize militias, it's because there are also a lot of reasons why that is not the answer to a serious and entrenched long-term conflict situation. Um, I will say that if, you know, governments do decide to go down that route, 
there is a real need to interrogate the political economy surrounding these forces, the way that it affects local conflict dynamics, and you need to have an off-ramp. Erica's point is that once you let the genie out of the bottle, once a government forms or supports a militia, it's essentially impossible to put him back in. Part of the trouble with paramilitaries is they might be laying the groundwork for future wars. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll be talking to Vandafelba Brown about how community-based militias are fighting Boko Haram in Nigeria and Al-Shabaab in Somalia. Until essentially um, 2015, the Nigerian military, although itself being extraordinarily brutal in response to the insurgents, um, was not able to effectively counter uh, Boko Haram. And the local populations were left at the mercy, at the predation, at the brutality, killings, rapes of Boko Haram. And so what started happening um, in 2012-2013 is that local militias emerged in Nigeria, in northern Nigeria, to start fighting uh, Boko Haram. Uh, in Somalia, we have uh, uh, tried to reduce violence, reduce killing, without ever addressing the conflict that underlies it. Then we'll be discussing with Fanar Haddad and Mara Refkin how popular mobilization forces in Iraq rose up against the Islamic State and what their role is in the country today. There is an international dimension, however, and I think this is where the danger comes in. Um, and it's the role that certain PMU actors play in making Iraq a battlefield for Iranian-American rivalries. Iraq turning into a battlefield on which America and its allies and Iran and its allies uh, message each other and, 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 and exert force and project power uh, uh, to each other and essentially dragging Iraq into regional conflicts that can ill afford. And we'll be exploring whether approaches that were aimed at combating Islamic State could in fact lead to a future resurgence of ISIS 2.0 or other extremist groups. Um, so my view really is that the as long as these root causes of IS's rise to power in northern Iraq, um, bad governance, corruption, and human rights abuses are still um, very much present, the risk of an IS um, resurgence in the form of an IS 2.0 or other extremist groups is significant. Those are just some of the topics that we'll be covering throughout this series. Visit us again to have another look inside today's hybrid wars. And if you have any comments on this episode or suggestions for future segments, please feel free to email us at hybridwars at unu.edu. That's hybridwars at unu.edu. Thanks very much for listening. This is a podcast recording by United Nations University Center for Policy Research. The views expressed are those of the speakers.